You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Adrian Bain, good evening. Hi. How are you on this fine Tuesday? I'm very tired. Yes? It's, it's really hot. It is very warm. And I'm tired because I got my second vaccine shot. As did I. Really? Which means, listener we meetup. We lick everything. What? <laughs> We went in such different directions. <laughs> Wait. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess we can see. I'm so used to not seeing people at this point that. Can I tell you a thought I had today? I would love to have a get together, like, of our listeners. Yeah. I don't know. How... <laughs> I don't know how we would do it. I don't know how we would do that, especially since that would still be wildly irresponsible. Yeah, and our apartment is not big enough. But guys, just come over. Or we could have a picnic. Or we can have a picnic. Oh my God, honestly, that'd be amazing. All right, we'll meet you in Prospect Park on Sunday uh-huh, 3 at PM. 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. Someone has to bring seltzer, mm-hmm. wine, mm-hmm. just only food that you've seen people in Six Feet Under eat. Yes, someone has to bring the Vicodin. Mm-hmm. A little and shout out to the episode we're about to watch. And maybe bring some Advil, but like slip in a few loose ecstasy pills and just see where the day <laughs> takes us. There we go. <laughs> Speaking of seeing people, here is a thought that I had Mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. I'm having this weird and very distressing experience where as I have started to venture out to interact with friends at a distance over coffee outside Mm -hmm. across tables, I'm finding that when the interaction gets close to an hour, I start to get itchy and I start to feel like this is supposed to be over soon and I, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to continue having this. That's in- literally how I feel right now. Interaction. Well, buckle up, sunshine. We got a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> That's really, uh, yeah, I've been getting some social anxiety around meeting up with friends. But this is what I think it is. I think it's two things. One is that for the last year plus, all almost all of my interaction with other people has been hour-long Zoom meetings. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of having an interaction with anybody but you <laughs> that lasts for more than an hour, my programming for that has just evaporated because my whole emotional familiarity with that now is open the computer, sit and make nice faces for one hour, which is exhausting and anxiety-inducing to do over this video chat platform. But don't worry, at the hour mark, it's over and you can close the laptop and be honest about the fact that you're still in your sweatpants. Figuratively and literally. Mm. (laughs) So that's one thing. But also, as you were talking about in the intro last week, television characters have replaced real friendships for much of the year. Mm Mm-hmm. And how long of a stretch do we interact with our TV friendos for and again, an hour can, at a time? And again, we can click them off. Exactly. I don't like this. It's terrible. But we're gonna... It's not permanent. It's just that our brains have slightly adjusted. But once we're able to be back and out with people, it's going to shift back. We have like, you know years of not only our own personal experience but of genetic coding in us that one year plus it's not going to do anything i'm just showing the raw uncomfortable inside of myself even if it does not feel good just like the characters of six feet under are about to do in season two episode six all right where to begin oh my god well let's start at the very beginning so we have matthew collins getting hammered drunk 
at the boat party mm-hmm. and falling over the side. And he says some pretty belligerent, but maybe honest things. About the company they're about working the company. for? About the company. There was a little bit of misdirection in the scene. Are we? Are these two young yeah. lovers going to be the ones who meet yeah, their untimely end? Oh my God. All right, Shakespeare. I feel the scene could have done better with my narration on top of it. That is a They're statement. rather close to the ledge. I have to hear that when we're watching it, so you don't have to subject the listeners to this. We want them to like us. And I think we can agree it improves the show. So, Matthew Collins falls into the water, perishes. We later find out that he is cleaved in twain by a propeller. Mm-hmm. But also, like, there's a moment where... He doesn't have to fall off. No, he leans after that cheap can of beer that he I know. was sad to part with. I know. I didn't think that it was... I felt like the moment we saw... Just going back to your misdirection thing. Mm-hmm. I felt like the moment we saw him being super belligerent, I was like, oh, he's going to fall off. You knew at that moment it I was going to be I kind of did. Him. So then I mm-hmm. thought it was too easy. So maybe it wouldn't be that. And then it was. Okay. Okay. So anyways, so what's the theme here? So the theme would be, so who else is like belligerent, which would be Patricia Clarkson, <laughs> who I fucking love. There is. Not th- only just as an actress, because she's incredible, uh-huh. but I, this character is so perfect <laughs> for She's the perfect foil. I want to say something about her before I forget it. Okay. Which is, I felt when we finally see her and Claire and Ruth on the screen at the same time. Yeah. I felt for the first time like, oh, I think I I understand something about Claire, which is that she is the exact midpoint of these two humans. Yes. Ruth and Sarah. Yeah. And then something clicked for me, Adrian. And I'd like to share it with you. You tell me what you think. Go on. Recently, we have been seeing Claire wearing green a great deal. Mm-hmm. And indeed, in the scene where Sarah comes into Claire's room and is looking at her artwork and evaluating it, mm-hmm. we see that there are two bright green pillows right. on <gasps> Claire's bed. Now, Adrian, right. I have thought often both in the past and in the recent past, when viewing this television program about the faded green color of Ruth's domain, the area where we see her most frequently, which is the Fisher family kitchen. Mm. It's a Mm -hmm. faded green. It is, it is. What color is Sarah wearing when we first meet her? She has turquoise beads around her neck or emerald could be emerald i thought they were turquoise turquoise is blue well that's debatable i think no it's not i experienced turquoise as greenish that's because you're colorblind be that as it may there was a greenish there's a bright green around around her neck sarah's neck suggesting i think that Claire still has that, whatever green is intended to simplify, to symbolize, mm-hmm. which we have talked about extensively on the show and have not yet come to a consistent interpretation, which I think is fine. It's an evolving conversation. Mm-hmm. But I think they're trying to say something basically with the, the color palette of green in particular with regard to Claire. I cannot wait until we get one of the writers on and they tell us to our faces that we are over-interpreting this. <laughs> I cannot wait for that moment, but I'm so here for all of this. Well, yeah. But I, you would think that everything would be like... But I would do you really that, think that's an accident? I don't know. I don't think it's an I accident. would love to... I do like to think that it has this larger story about like Claire's evolving sexuality and, and love life and... Oh, I, yeah, I just, I like that. Sarah's green is, so is a little about, bit more alive. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Sarah. Oh, my fucking God. Let's talk about Sarah. I 
this is what this, these are the feelings that I that came up inside of me. Tell me when we've been asking people, which Fisher are you? I have a very confident answer now, <laughs> and I think that Sarah is. I think I could become Sarah if I don't do the like settling down and you know, like paying rent in one consistent place and having like a regular job, like that is a thousand percent my future. Like I love you, Sam, but if this doesn't work out, I'm on a one-way ticket to Mexico City. Like there's no (laughs) ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I also am like so annoying and have those dumb sentences of like, oh, I had this lover in Peru. You know, like I, oh, oh my God. And then my sis, I saw... In Ruth, I saw Regina, but also as, like, an unevolved version, you know? So I looked at both Ruth and Sarah as, like, kind of unevolved, like, very extreme versions of these personalities, whereas, like, my sister Regina, she has children. She has chosen the – she has a job, but she's chosen domestic life and to, like, have babies, which I fucking love um, because she makes cute fucking kids and – but I could see her becoming like, I don't know. I could see her. Ruth is very similar to my grandma Louise and she's very uptight. So I see like, I don't think Regina is uptight now. I want that to be clear, G, if you hear this. I don't think she's uptight now. But I could maybe see, depending on how life bends her, that that could be a tentative path. You know, so and and then in... In um, in contrast to her sister, like it's I only saw Regina and Ruth because I saw so much of myself in Sarah. So, and they're just such different individuals. And I, but I think that's something that Regina and I have, which I don't know if these I don't know if Ruth and Sarah has is that. I think at a very early age, Regina and I realized that we have chosen very different paths. And just like our characters are very different from each other, but have absolutely chosen to love that person and make fun of that and, you know, like use it as something to like hopefully have a deeper connection with instead of having it pull us apart. I definitely see that. that. I definitely see that in your relationship with your sister. I don't feel that I saw that between Ruth and Sarah, though. That's what I'm saying is that like, in an alternative universe. You and Regina are the evolved version. That's what saying. I like to think. Okay, okay, okay. That's what I like to think. I can see it. Because I don't, I've thought about this, about what would it be to be this like, it is fun to be a woman and travel around and have a lover in every country and a story about every place you've ever been to. But at a certain time, it does get very exhausting and you do kind of like crave that like, I kind of want like a little bit more. This is my own experience. And I've thought about like, what would it feel like if I'm still doing that in my 50s? Like it just doesn't look the same. It doesn't feel the same. Well, Sarah says in this. And she goes there. Ruth says to her, you got to have all this fun. fun. And... Sarah clarifies very quickly. She was very much escaping. And we see Sarah self-medicating yeah. all through the episode. Yeah. She's drinking vodka with Nikolai. She's taking the Vicodin. Vicodin with a shot of wine, yeah. you know? She's clearly... I'm surprised she didn't smoke weed. I'm actually really surprised we didn't see that. <laughs> so... Who knows what else was in that bag that the tarragon was in? Who knows? Tarragon? It was really tarragon. Yeah. Mm, there you go. So... I see, I hope that Regina and I are the more evolved versions of that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Well, do you feel like there was ever a period where, because what's powerful to me about this episode is that there's been this 20-year gap. Oh, that's horrifying. Between the two of them. And they very much seem to pick up right where they left off. Yeah. Um, and I like that in in their reunion with each other, we find out about one of the wounds that Ruth is nursing, where a lot of her personality comes from, this issue about who took care of their, their grandmother when their mom died. Oh. And 
I know that for you and Regina, there has not been a, a trauma like that that, no. you know, drives a wedge between two siblings. Yeah. I um, would hope that mine and Regina's relationship is strong enough to withstand anything. And I think that it's interesting that you say like, oh, they fall back into rhythm with each other. I don't, I don't think you, how do I want to say this? I don't think it matters like how many years go by when you are with somebody at those extremely like early formative years and like an every single day thing, like I don't think you ever shake them. Mm-hmm. I don't think you ever shake them. Yeah. Yeah. No matter how terrible you were to each other, like I don't think that it their essence is like always I don't know. There's there's what is it? It's like the third person is what's created out of a relationship of two people. So like out of a relationship. So when two people are friends or lovers or siblings or parent, you know, whatever relationship, a third person is kind of created. It's like this ghost between them. You and I call it a garden. And this is true. You want to make the garden as like beautiful and flourishing and fruitful And, like, I think with any relationship, I think with a sibling relationship, like, the gardens never die. It just, like, is overrun with weeds. You know, it's not like the soil is dead. Like, things are still growing there, but. Right. It just hasn't been tended to. Exactly. Thank you. I also really loved, to the point of Ruth thinking, Sarah went off and did all these fun things. Mm -hmm. Ruth is now a part of this thing, the plan, which she thinks is her own. I know. And it turns out Sarah was part of it. She basically reveals it as the MLM we all suspected it to be. Yeah. Because she was part of it in its previous iteration before the guy who founded it was busted for tax evasion and had to change the name. Yeah. Which is such a common thing with MLMs where they get busted and then they change the name, but it's the same exploitive model. Um and I thought it was interesting in that sense that, stay with me now, I think for me, the Matthew Collins death was less about him as a person and more about his wife Oh yeah. and her desire to see the body. She wanted to see the body. She wanted to see him for who he was, even if it hurts. And I feel like that was what was going on in the dynamic between many of the characters throughout this episode Hmm. was people being willing or unwilling to look at the truth of who they are or what their dynamic with another character is. And I thought it was interesting that in that moment with the plan, Sarah sees it for what it is. And then she recognizes Claire as having this eye to be able to, as Sarah puts it, see through the veil. Right. And we have talked so many times on this show about how Claire is so disappointed by people's illusions of themselves. And it occurred to me, Claire's name is French for clear. Mm. She sees things clearly. Yeah. She's the only one. That's beautiful. Of all of them. And I like that Sarah recognizes that quality in her. Absolutely. I feel like Claire didn't need any of that guidance counselor bullshit. She just needed her aunt to like hang around and see her. (laughs) And I do really think that like Claire is, when Claire was in the room with Sarah and Ruth, it looked like a complete picture. There was something where it was like, everyone's here. This is great. It's a continuum. It's a continuum. And I just like, I don't know, again, to just be projecting, like, I hope that I can be, I hope that I can be that for my nieces, because at this point, it looks like we're taking pretty similar paths when it comes to children, but, but I want to be able to like, how do I want to say this? 
although Ruth obviously like loves her daughter and wants to support her in anything, like she's not going to see everything. And I think that's why it's really important to have relationships with your siblings because your siblings will help you help evolve your child too. Like they're going to see things in the kid that like you as the parent might just be a little too close. But like, I just, Sarah just made so much sense because we knew that Claire had this like artistic streak in her, that there was something a little different about her. And there seemed to be this missing piece as to like, well, where does she get this from? You know, like Nathaniel Sr. had no, did Mm -hmm. not demonstrate any artistic abilities, neither do her brothers, nor does Ruth, other than like a flower arrangement that's delightful. But that doesn't seem to be her heart song, you know? So the fa- I just felt like Sarah was this perfect missing piece that can just like help Claire fill in a lot of who she was. And I feel like the aunt is there just like cut loose with the kids, you know? Let, let her 32-year-old <laughs> friend take his virginity, which that's extremely fucked up. And what is that? Um, statutory. statutory rape. Yeah. But explains so much about Nate. Yeah, it does. We'll get to that in a second, but I, I want to stay on this thing about how Sarah is necessary to see the full range of Claire's mm-hmm. personality in a way that Ruth can't necessarily on her own. I agree with that, but to jump to the very last scene, I don't know about you, but I was very moved by that sequence where Ruth comes into the room and she has the box full of Claire's artwork that she has saved. And I think, yes, it, it took Sarah's presence to make Ruth realize she had, it wasn't enough to just save it. You have to let Claire know that you saved it. Totally. And even if you don't make all these value assessments of it, the way Sarah does where she comes in and she's like, Oh, I see rage. I see rejection of the status quo. It's unevolved, but it's developing or whatever. Even if Ruth doesn't do that, there is there's a way that just saving and preserving it makes yeah. Claire feel really seen. And that's not something that Sarah could do necessarily. Because Sarah needed it to be about her. Yeah. And Ruth I I, I don't know what the Well, I I was saying it more in like because because Claire's not Sarah's kid. Like, she can't save all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, my mom has boxes of every little thing that we made when we were kids. Like, they're just big Tupperwares. And that's something that only a mom can do, you know? Yes. And I thought it was very... Although, to in Sarah's somewhat defense, she wouldn't have had the opportunity to save anything Claire made because Ruth has never out. introduced her. I mean, yeah, this is I the know. first time it's they're meeting. Ridiculous. But also, I thought it was very interesting and subtle that when Ruth comes in to have that interaction with Claire, Claire is chatting online with a friend. She's having a virtual interaction. I know. I'm like, what fucking friend, Claire? And well, yes, raises questions, but she's having a virtual intermediated interaction with somebody when Claire comes in and has this incredibly sincere direct moment with her that I don't think was an accident no and it's finally Ruth like understanding what it means to connect yeah which is something that she's been like grabbing like grasping for Mm -hmm. this whole time and Sarah is seems to be able to make very great connections very quickly Mm -hmm. you know like at least she did with Nikolai, and but we know there was vodka involved. So, <laughs> but can I say something about that too? Mm-hmm. I also really loved the sequence where Nikolai's being very flirty and playful with Sarah, but then when Ruth is upset during that dinner scene, and he go and she goes into the kitchen, Nikolai, as drunk as he is, knows that he needs to get up from the table yeah. and go in and offer Ruth some comfort. Yeah. And offer to clean up the dishes. It was, that was very honestly tender from Nikolai. This was a great Nikolai episode. Nikolai was 
crushing it in this episode. Nicola, Nicola, Nicola is the only one who had a good episode. It's very true. Because, <laughs> like, from the moment he was having breakfast with everybody, he uh-huh. was like, I got laid last night. How are y'all doing? My lady's making some bomb-ass breakfast. Uh-huh. Fucking, let's put some vodka in this orange juice to make some, what is it? Uh, brass monkeys. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Well, so, he- yeah. But no, you're totally right. He does, like... I think, yeah, he obviously recognizes, like, the most important thing is Ruth. And even though he is belligerent and her sister is, like, kind of throwing herself on him, he still knows, like, what the right thing to do is. One other thing about Sarah that came up for me in that moment where she's being so forward with, I don't know why I just said that, like... She's being handsy. uh, Yeah. Um, I felt in this, like... There's a way that Sarah is, she's sort of Parker all grown up in a way. Ooh. Not so much in terms of the, in terms of the lack of boundaries, in terms of the, I just call it like it is. I just say what I feel. I just have sex with whoever I want. I just do it. I just open myself to life. Mm -hmm. And... But I believed it in Sarah in a way that Parker, as we have discussed, sometimes comes across as a little bit forced. Yeah. But I had this thought watching, and I think it's interesting that Claire really opens up to Sarah in the same way that Claire really opens up to Parker. But I had this thought in Parker's defense watching this, like, well, of course Parker's being really forced. She's... 17 or 18 years old. So she's doing everything to the extreme because she's trying things on to see what fits. And I feel like that's a, that's a kindness in my thoughts that I hadn't extended to Parker previously. Like, I was like, why isn't she better written? Well, we're all terribly written when we're 18 years old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's totally true. Because we're the like protozoa versions of ourselves. Exactly. And I think that, again, who knows how intentional or unintentional these things are, but... But to your point, yes, Sarah seems very extreme, but at the end, we understand her pain and how her pain kind of, like, propels that, like, very exaggerated world traveler artist life. And I think that's just, like, a testament to how good Patricia Clarkson is, is, like... True. She's able to understand what is motivating this. What is, I think that even if she didn't have that line of like, oh, my uterus is dried up and all that stuff. I think that Patricia Clarkson is just a good enough actress to like, even if there wasn't a motive, she would have created it, you know, but she definitely plays it really well. Yeah. Because at no point does it feel like she's a two dimensional character. Right. You know, so. Speaking of women from Six Feet Under who are mm-hmm. seeking their true identities. Oh, my God. Brenda. Okay, there is. Oh, my God, Brenda. A lot to talk about what with Brenda. What is going on? In this episode. Let's start. Well, where do you want to start? I just, I can't stop thinking about the handjob. We got to start with the handjob. We got to start with the handjob. Is that how you want to start? Sorry. Um, <laughs> Did you think that... That was a dream sequence at first. No. You believed it was real right from the jump. I believed it was real right from the start. Interesting. My theory is, was it the previous episode where she sat in on the sex? Yes, it was. I think that, I think she might have gotten a little too much in her head or too much like sideways confidence. And was like, oh, I could do this. And then quickly realized that this was like the wrong direction to take this in. Um, and I don't know if she would have done that if she hadn't sat in on. What's her friend's name? Melissa. I don't know if she would have done that if she didn't sit in on Melissa's. But let's let's probe a little deeper on that because yeah. what is it about what she observed in Melissa that you think she was responding to in that moment. I'm not 
challenging you. I'm no, trying no, no, to I know. understand I dig it myself deeper. in the moment. No, I want to dig deeper. Well, everything, you've heard me say this a million times. Everything, and now I can't remember it. Oh, <laughs> this, it, I have heard Adrian say this a million no, times. No, no, no. Everything in the world is about sex except sex. Sex is about power. Foucault. So you think that... And so... No, in if if it is a paid exchange, it is a dilute. It is a it is a what's the word? It's a um, illusion of who is in control, right? So if we're going back to the Invisible Woman episode, the point of paying for sex is because it it makes the man seem like he's in control, but. He's not. This woman can walk away whenever she wants, right? Um, as long as she feels safe for her life. I, I quibble a little bit with the idea that it's always about that for the man, but continue. I know. I know it's for, like, multiple things, but I think in that moment, I think when he, like, he looks at Brenda, he's clearly turned on by the fact that yes. he is being watched. He feels very powerful in that moment. And then Brenda goes back and laughs, you right, know, right. which shows that he had no power in that moment. That, like, both of these women could have stood up and been like, put your fucking pants on, we're leaving. You know, like... Yes, right. He was not in control. It's an illusion. But in the handjob moment, I'm a little twisted as to, like, who had... Like, did Brenda... Is Brenda grasping for power? <laughs> or is she... I think that she wanted that illusion, but then quickly realized, like, oh, no, this is very real. This is a sexual act that is not supposed to be paid for, which means that I'm actually cheating on my boyfriend right now. I think that she she got it twisted. And then she realized that, like, what I did was totally wrong and inappropriate and crossed major boundaries. And I can never see this person again, which mm-hmm. is why she like, and that last interaction between them, between like, oh, so I'll come back next week. No, no, she's like, it's all about power. And she has the power to say, no, 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 no this is not happening again. I, I agree. It, it was very much about power, but I also saw it as being about intimacy. And Ooh. there seems to be something about intimacy with Nate that makes Brenda feel out of control. And so maybe this is about power. I will explain my thinking on this. It's evolving in real time. I think what that dream was about, Mm -hmm. where Nate smothers her with the pillow, is yes, there's the overt idea that, oh, he he is smothering me. Yeah. But as we have discussed, and as Brenda has affirmed in her conversation with Melissa, when Nate opens up too much, when Nate tries to make things too genuinely intimate between them, when he suggests telling his family and telling her family about their engagement, yeah. Brenda recoils. It makes her feel out of control. Yeah. And as we've discussed, that that seems to have a lot to do with Billy. Can I just quibble with you saying out of control? I think she just, I don't think it's like she feels out of control. I feel like she thinks the situation is out of control. Where she's like, I don't know how to navigate this. I don't think she's out of control. I just want to, I just want to clarify yes, that. I don't mean out of that. I, I understand. I don't mean out of control as in erratic. Yeah. I mean out of control it's as like, in this could go to places that I know are unhealthy, yeah. which I think has to do with Billy. Yeah. And, and the fact that those lines have gotten so blurry there. But so I think that's what's going on in that dream is that. You know, as we have talked about, every time Nate says, I love you to Brenda, she doesn't say it back, including in this episode. She says, good. I know. (laughs) I'm going to say that to you next. I hope you are joking. (laughs) Hmm. I've never been one for humor. Um, (laughs) I have abundant evidence to the contrary, (laughs) my love. (laughs) Um. So I I took that dream that she had to be about, Nate is literally saying to her, I love you, I love you so much. And she feels like she's given away too much power. She's given away too much control. This is why it's about power. So the next thing we see her do. Right, she can't tell him that she loves him because that's giving up power. Right. (gasps) And the next thing we see her do is take control Of of the intimacy in this interaction. 
in two ways, right? Yeah. She decides to proceed with the hand job, and then she tells the guy, this will never happen again. You, yeah. You're not coming here anymore. Yeah. And I, I don't think... I had thought about this before, but I wonder if the reason on some level that Nate hasn't told Brenda about his condition mm -hmm. is because even though he continues to try to get her to open up to him, on some level he senses that if he opens up to her that much, it will drive her away or cause her to shut down or, or something. Do you think... I just really want to know why you won't tell her. <laughs> I know. No, I think that's really interesting because when Nate is post, is after he's seen the woman like laugh at her husband's like mutilated body and he goes to Brenda and he's like, I never want us to do that. Like he's being very sincere about like, I'm trying to have a real conversation as an adult about something that's like very serious and can definitely happen in any relationship. Eye contact. Um, <laughs> Hold on. I just have to make sure the levels on but, the recorder uh, are and, working. Uh, Digman, look at me. Um, <laughs> Ooh, what was that sound outside? And Brenda, again, kind of bypasses it. Mm -hmm. And I am curious if they feel the expiration date, which is something that you and I have talked about, where we have said in past relationships, yes. even if it's going really great, even if we really like this person and there seems to be no obvious problems, we have both had an inkling that something is going to, that this is not it. There that this is, is an expiration date. That there is an expiration date or in your, for me, it's, there's an expiration date for you. It's like, this is a thing that's going to end it. But yeah. we both, I think it's the same feeling. Mm -hmm. So I think on the count of three, we say the expiration date of our relationship, one, two, three, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Tomorrow. Um, <laughs> I am so fucked and would have not have housing. Um, that's why we're saying that. Who has the power now, Bane? <laughs> that's really fucked up. I know. Um, but I'm curious if they're both withholding from each other because they both secretly feel that. If they both feel like, I know this isn't it. Well, uh, I'm fascinated by that question. I wonder... And I'm tempted to say I agree, but then I'm also tempted to say that's us projecting, oh, heavily projecting ourselves completely. into them a little too much because we have to remember that Nate, neither Nate or Brenda has ever really had a long-term relationship as an adult. That's true, but like this is my longest relationship as an adult. True, but you've had other ones. I've had other ones and I've like known that like this will be fun, but I knew that it wasn't. And I'm not saying that that's what this <laughs> shit. I have made Adrian more uncomfortable in this episode <laughs> than all the other episodes combined. And it's not even on purpose. So could be totally projecting, but then like, why wouldn't they? All, all I'm saying is you've had other relationships where you set out down the path thinking mm -hmm. perhaps it could be. Sure. I'm only saying this because you've told me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You set out down the path thinking perhaps this could be that. It still could be. With, I know. I understand. <laughs> That's why I'm working so hard every day <laughs> to win that affection. Mm-hmm. You're going to put a little How sweat into it. How am but... I doing? <laughs> Need a sign. <laughs> Listeners, I would love for you to write in and tell Sam how it is. No, it's okay. <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> That's fine. You can write in and I'm curious. <laughs> How do I come across? Okay, we're getting desperate <laughs> for affirmation. Um, no, but like, yes, well, I think we are we are projecting a little bit into them because I don't know if they, I don't know if the idea of an expiration date, I don't know if either of them has ever been in a partnership, right? That but has been significant enough to even think about the idea that they're there would be an expiration date and then that would be a bad thing mm. rather than just, oh, thank God, this will be over. Right. But I think it's interesting that after Nate says that to her, which I agree is very intimate and vulnerable and bespeaks the depth of feeling that he at least thinks he has for her mm -hmm. on some level. She says, if there was ever 
something like that that came up between us, I would I'd have be, been long gone. I know. What does that mean? I think it, it goes back to what we were just talking about, about her relationship with intimacy, which is that rather than talk about it, rather than be intimate, emotionally, she would just smoke bomb. That's really interesting because that makes total sense. I interpreted that as she would be dead. Whoa. Mm -hmm. Wait, say more about that. That's all. Because I feel like they would be long gone. That's something that you kind of say about someone dying. Wait, you what don't, is? You don't what say is? that about... No, wait. Like, I wouldn't say I would be long gone. I feel like you say that about death more than saying, oh, I'm leaving this relationship. Okay. Like, I don't, I don't say that my exes are long gone. I just say that we broke up. I just think that that was a really interesting choice of words. And like, whereas, whereas when you talk about someone who's dead, it's like, oh, they're long dead. You know, like they're. Wait, so if it means this is fascinating. I don't know so, if this means anything. I could have misinterpreted the moment, but. Well, so if it, no, I mean. But I don't know, because some people have that. I hate it when people say this, but some people say like oh, I know I'm going to die young, which I, I hate when people say that because it just makes me nervous. Yeah. But maybe Brenda, because she's like, oh, I can't believe, you know, going back to her during the dinner date and she's like, oh, I'm always surprised that we're here the next day when she wakes up because she was like, we're all going to die in a nuclear explosion. Um. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe she has this idea that like, I'm not going to live that long. So... Which would be ironic because Nate's someone who's grappling with his mortality right now. Whoa. Whoa. I would be long gone. That sounds like she, she would be dead. That doesn't sound like she, they would have broken up. And you think that is a function of the fact that she's like, sure, why wouldn't I marry Nate? I don't even know if I'm going to live to see tomorrow. Yeah. Wow. I would hmm. be long gone. I don't know. I would love for someone else to write in and see if... They that is a heard the same thing. That is a direct question to you listeners that we would Please. love to know your take on. What did you hear I'd in that moment? Because I could see, because also like I could be long gone could also mean I would, in my life, I would say it as in like, I'd be very far away. I would be, you know, if this didn't work out, I would be in Thailand. I yeah, would you be literally in, said earlier in the episode, yeah. if this doesn't work out, you're going to Mexico City. I know <laughs> the apartment I want to stay in. Um, so there's something about it that doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's just a breakup. Maybe that's what I want to say. Hmm. I don't know. FFG at WALT.FM would love to know what you all heard. Yeah, I would love that. From Brenda in that moment. Let's talk about David and Ben. Oh, I, this is, this is the heartbreak that makes Ben like women again. <laughs> In Adrian's grand unified theory of Adam Scott as Ben. I don't know why I said again, but. Right. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe Leslie is his first lady. lady. Mm -hmm. In Adrian's grand unified theory, this is what sets him on the path that ends. In yeah, his he leaves law. He naturally goes into politics. Leslie Nope. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. then he shacks up with a little cutie in small town Indiana. <laughs> well, what was your feeling about what we saw between Ben and David? I don't I don't know. I didn't think that I can definitely see that they might have overlapped a little too quickly. Mm-hmm. I could see David not giving his like full self, but also I feel like we haven't seen really give David his full self because when he was officially with Keith, mm -hmm. he was like, I'm not super comfortable about my sexuality. And then they break up and then he becomes super comfortable with his sexuality and then they hook up and they're not supposed to, but David is like, I'm so fucking into this. And now he's like heartburned by Keith and then- Wait, what did you just say? Heartburned. Heartburned? Like your heart burns. Like your heart hasn't broken. I've never heard anyone use heartburn that way. It's because I'm reading Nora Ephron. It's so good. Yeah. 
He's heartburned. He's heartburned. Or sometimes they say, like, my heart is bruised. That's so good. Thanks, honey. Okay, please continue. So I totally know that feeling, like, <laughs> my before I met you and my, like, other, the person who I was with long-term before we split, kind of more on his terms, but it I am very glad that he's on that path. And I met someone the next day and they were lovely. They were great. But I was like, I literally, this was the line I used. I told him that like, you're amazing. You are a catch. You are a seven course meal, but my taste buds are burned. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if your taste buds are burned, it doesn't matter how expensive, how delicious. It could be the best meal in the world. You're not going to taste it. Right. You got to be there for it. But then my taste buds healed perfectly for you. So, well, I lapping that up. Sorry. <laughs> have always had impeccable timing. I can tell that that was not what? a good time to say what I just said. So maybe I haven't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Wait, okay. I agree with you very much. So that's what I think that happened with. Ben and David. Yes, absolutely. And I have had that same conversation that David has with Ben in that moment in my life in the past, obviously. Who the fuck is... Sorry. And I loved that scene. I, I guess my feeling about that whole arc between him and Ben is that to me, it's so obvious. There's no surprises in it. Yeah. It's so obvious that David is still in love with Keith. Yeah. It's so obvious that he and Ben are too similar. Yeah. To be a, a, to have a real truly dynamic connection. And because their vibrations are too close together. They're they're yeah. harps that play the same note. And Aww. it's so clear that Ben is ready to to find his partner and that David is not ready to find his partner. He's just getting back out there. And what I appreciated about that, I guess, is in a show where relationships take so many unexpected twists and turns and people turn out to be so different than we expected them to be. And it turns out that they have these whole other sides to themselves that nobody, the characters in the show or the viewers of the show ever saw coming. There was something very refreshing about a relationship dynamic that wasn't necessarily dramatically surprising, but so sincerely and authentically rendered, written, performed. The dynamic between David and Ben wasn't full of explosive drama and or melodrama or epic betrayals or people pulling guns. It was also only three weeks. I know, but we've. But how long were Claire and Gabe together? You know, that's totally different. We didn't see it devolve. No, that's Claire and Gabe are teenagers it's and true. riddled with hormones. Everything is dramatic. I know. Whereas Ben and David have like leveled out in their thirties. I know. I just mean. But so, yeah, it was very simple. So many relationships in the show devolve into chaos. True. And I like that this relationship was just. Or is born out of chaos. Or is born out of chaos. But this relationship was just two adults very maturely realizing we're not on the same page. And yeah. I just thought it was very cool to see that contained within the chaos and melodrama of Six Feet Under can mm -hmm. also be this other oh, dynamic. Oh, yeah. That's a good call. Because I think that both of them handled it as maturely as they could. Right. Like, it wasn't any, like, hard feelings or anything. It was just, like, I think this isn't where the timing was off. Yeah. You know? Ben doesn't, like, retaliate by trashing David's room. He yeah. Just, he gets upset, justifiably. Yeah. And he leaves. Yeah. Hmm. And David doesn't continue lying to Ben. He doesn't... Yeah, that's true. You know, string it on for further than it should go out of some sense of guilt or obligation. He realizes that he's got to call it. it like it is. and Yeah. That's a good point. I think the only other big thing that we should talk about is David and Nate's trip to Mitzi's... Oh, fucking Mitzi. Frank Sinatra house. One thing I did think was cool, cinematically, in that scene, is they 
walk into the house and Mitzi shows them the mirrored coffee table. Yeah. And they see themselves inverted in it. And they are almost literally in the through the looking glass version of their lives. True. They still live in their parents' house. That's fucking good. They're carrying forward, you know, this uncomfortable legacy of their father. And for Mitzi, it's all about making money and living fast yeah. and having no connection to the actual nature of the totally. work. And actually, whoa, I just had two thoughts in a row. One is Nate's whole thing in this episode is how much the job gets to him. He says to David, and then he, he says it to Brenda too. Um, doesn't this ever get to you? And then he goes to Brenda and says, uh, this woman screamed at the corpse of her husband because they had this terrible, abusive dynamic. Well, he was abusive to her. And then he says, I don't ever want that to be between us. Like it, it's clearly permeating his life. Whereas for Mitzi, there is no, that membrane is very thick. Yeah. <laughs> she has work-life, I don't want to say balance, but separation. In the same way that Claire sees things clearly. Hmm. Nate has an innate sense of people's nature. An innate sense. Whoa. Of their nature. Are you giving it to me? From the look on your face, you haven't decided yet. <laughs> yeah, I haven't decided yet. Because I'm thinking about David. David's harder. But David is harder. That'll do it for do this it. week's episode of Fisher Family Ghosts. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you have thoughts, feelings, or responses to anything you've heard on the show today, you can send them to us at ffg at walt.fm. Adrian Bain, tell the people where else they can hear your sultry voice. Well, Sam... Perhaps some of those globe-trotting Sarah stories Adrian some alluded globe to. Some country-trotting, country-driving stories are coming up. Um, I'm working on another little mini-series for my podcast, Strangers Abroad. It is a narrative travel podcast, and you'll be able to hear all about mine and Sam's cross-country adventure. So please find me on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to leave review rate it thumbs up like it subscribe strangers abroad that is if you can navigate the new apple podcasts interface on ios am i right it's very confusing i have a show that i would love if you reviewed with your ears as well it is called family ghosts and on this week's show we have a very beautiful story from one of my very favorite storytellers not just in new york city but in all of the globe that Adrian has trotted. Uh, her name is Erin Barker. She's incredibly talented, a friend of both Adrian and I's in the storytelling scene in New York. And I was very privileged to have her tell a story on the show this week. I hope you will listen to it. She is a gifted writer. She's so great. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>